Yeah. 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 It's wonderful. And, and, you know, these times of fellowship are sweet and wonderful. And so thank you for that. And, and, um, all right. Well, that being said, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, invite you to stand with me and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter four. We're going to read our text for our study as our scripture reading this morning. And that's Ephesians chapter four. We're going to read verses four through six. And I think we're going to have it on the screen behind me, but if not, just feel free to read it out of the version that you're reading out of. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, we thank you and bless you for the clarity with which you have made so many of these truths known to us in your word. And we pray that as we spend time on these things today, that, Lord, you would help us to understand them, to rejoice in them, to embrace them, to understand the firm foundation upon which we really stand in our faith. And so thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace and mercy toward us in these things and so many other things. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would just draw us in close to yourself into a deeper understanding, knowledge, and ultimately, therefore, then a deeper love for you as we come to know you better. So thank you for this gathering and pray that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you go ahead and be seated. All right, well, again, we're in the letter, to, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and um, as we get further into chapter 4, we can't help but remember, and I would certainly want us to remember, all of the rich truths that Paul has been talking about throughout the first few chapters, really amounting to the idea that we have now been drawn close, accepted in the beloved, and brought into the family of God. And not only that, but in a very supernatural um, development, God has actually, in Christ, broken down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. So no longer are there, um, you know, uh, for the time being in, in our current context, this idea of, of separation, division between Jew and Gentile, but rather God has brought Jew and Gentile together into this new entity called the church. Now, as we've said before, and no doubt we'll say again, there remains a national ethnic Israel who remains the apple of God's eyes, chosen people, through whom he will accomplish his purposes in the last days. But in this age in which we are living in right now, this age of grace, as we often call it, the church age, we find that the body of Christ is a conglomeration, a bringing together of God's chosen people, Israel, believing Israel, those who have embraced Messiah, and also Gentiles. We now become part of the household of God, something that has been a mystery through ages past, but now has been made known to us. And now we stand not as separate entities, but as one. Now, after the church is removed from the earth, God will once again work through Israel primarily as his vehicle to reach the world in that last period of time, uh, known as the 70th week of Daniel or the, uh, the tribulation period in that. But right now, we are living in an age where God is actually created from the two, one. And it's a beautiful mystery that has been made known to us. It's a beautiful truth that Paul has been talking about in these first three chapters of the first half of the book of Ephesians, the letter. And now he has gone, he has moved and shifted gears from talking about what has been done by God in creating this entity, 
that in Christ bringing us together into the household of faith, now he begins to describe what that looks like. But as he does, he begins to starts that transition uh, in, in these first six verses of chapter four by talking about what it looks like and now what we stand upon. Last time, and I'll just read these first three verses here just to give us kind of that running start into our passage this morning. Paul again said at the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness and with long suffering, bearing with one another in love and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so in the first half of the book, he talks about what it is that we are now a part of, what we've been brought into. Uh, he also talks about how, again, we are partakers in Christ. In this next section as we move into, in verses 4 through 7, or 4 through 6 this morning, uh, these foundational truths that Paul will talk about give us the basis upon which these ideas are built. This is what we stand on. This is foundational to our faith in terms of explaining what it is. Now, you're going to notice something here, or you may have noticed something in the passage as we read it together this morning. There's a word that pops up a few times along the way in that passage. One. One. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one God and Father of us all. This, this idea of a singular one entity, thing, whatever the one is he's talking about, there is a sense of exclusivity in what he is talking about, in each of these points he makes. Now, I say that at the outset because I'm going to talk about our Christian faith in terms that make it sound as though I believe it's the only way to be saved and to be right with God. And there's a reason for that. It's because it is. Okay? Now, when Paul is saying that it is, now, the reason I'm entering into this the way I am is because that will strike some as being very narrow-minded, a little bit bigoted, a little bit snooty, spiritually speaking, and that kind of thing. But we need to understand something as we begin to break this open. All faiths claim exclusivity at some point. This is not unique to Christianity. All faiths claim exclusivity. Even the most open-minded of people will tell you that you're wrong if you're not as open-minded as they are. Baha'i, which is essentially a a universalist kind of a religion that tries to embrace all religions, would still at some point say that if you don't agree with them on that point, then you are wrong. They would try with all their might to avoid saying that you're wrong, but they would believe that you are because you're not believing as they do. And so there's no escaping this. As a matter of fact, you may be sitting here today thinking you are far more enlightened and open-minded than that. If you're disagreeing with what I'm saying right now, then you're demonstrating that you're not. I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm not trying to poke fun. This is the reality. This is the logical reality of all belief systems. Everyone claims exclusivity at some point. And so it is not unfair that the Christian faith would do the same thing. Now the difference is, is that we're not right because we claim exclusivity. We're claiming that the gospel itself alone is the only saving message, or as, 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 you know, Peter would say in, in Acts chapter 4, there is no name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It is only the name of Jesus. 
and it is only the real Jesus who exists in space and time and is described in Scripture, who literally is God in the flesh, who took our sin upon himself, paid for it once and for all, was buried, rose again, and ever lives. Now, if, if we have a different Jesus, we have a different gospel. And by the way, when, when we're saying these things, I don't mean to come like blazing out of the gates like this, but... <laughs> But I want to lay this foundation as we move into these things so that I don't have to keep returning to it. Because I just want to spend time in the passages. Everybody, whether they admit it or not, thinks this way at some point. They do. Because it's logical. It, there is no other way that makes sense to think. The only question is, is what you are believing is true actually true? To answer this question regarding the Christian faith, we have very a very short distance to look. We can look in, of course, the eyewitness accounts. We can look in 1 Corinthians 15, written by somebody who was completely opposed to the person of Christ until he literally met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 lays out this tremendous treatise on the reality and the importance and the centrality of the resurrection of Christ, not just his death on the cross, but his resurrection from the dead. The entire Christian faith rests on that truth. If Christ is not risen, then we are the most pitiable of all men because we are proclaiming a message that is untrue and we remain in our sins and we are even willing to suffer for something that isn't even really true. But because Christ is alive and was seen by many eyewitnesses, we know it's true. And so therefore we put our, we stake our claim on this. Now, as Christians, you and I take that for granted. But for non-believers, it's not taken for granted. We have to be able to explain these things when the opportunities come so they can see that ours is not just like every other religion in the world. It just has a series of practices that help make us better people or more spiritual or something like that. Rather, instead, we are following a living Savior who literally came from heaven to earth and gave his life perfect as it was for our sins. The innocent for the guilty, the sinless for the sinner. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay? So, therefore, since we believe this to be true, what Paul is saying here in these verses we're going to spend time on logically would follow and make sense and give us a foundation upon which to build our faith and also our lives lived out in response to our faith. And that's what the letter of the Ephesians is really all about. He lays out in the first half of the book all of this beautiful, magnificent, lofty, uh, indescribable, almost, uh, truths about where we are in Christ. And then he begins to talk about what that therefore leads to in, in the course of what it means to be somebody who is in that camp. And so that being said, again, in verse, uh, uh, in verse three, let me just kind of now move into the text. In verse three, the last thing we looked at last week was not just the idea of walking worthy of the calling, but also endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This exclusivity is a gift. This truth that has been given to us, the foundations upon which we stand, the eternity that we look forward to, all the things that are intertwined with this are things that are worthy of our protecting. Guarding the purity of, not protecting like it's going to go away if we don't stand up. No, but guarding the purity of it within the fellowship of the saints. 
One of the last things we talked about last week in this regard was that if if someone were to come in teaching false doctrine, we would have a responsibility as believers, both myself as a pastor, but not just as a pastor, but every one of us would have a responsibility to confront that, lest the purity of the meeting of the saints be tainted and become something less than what God wants it to be. Now that sounds divisive. But Paul himself in Romans, as we read last week, spoke about marking those who cause divisions among you not according to what you were taught and avoid them. The Christian faith is by definition divisive insofar as it claims to be true and it does not sacrifice truth for the sake of some version of unity. But rather we believe in a unity based on truth. And after all, who wouldn't? Think about that once again. I want a unity based on falseness, said no one ever, right? Of course not. You would never want that. You would want a unity based on truth. The question, once again, of course, is, is what you're believing and therefore basing your unity on, is it true or not? And we've touched on it again lightly here. But this is the mindset of the believer within the fellowship of the saints. We're not looking for reasons to keep people out. We want people to be part of it but not at the expense of truth, not the expense of what God has said. And so therefore we believe it's important to make sure that in our own lives we guard our own hearts in this regard, but in regard to the fellowship of the saints, we also make sure that we guard the purity of that gathering. It is a wonderful thing when unbelievers walk into the church and hear the gospel and hear the teaching of the word of God. I think there's obviously a place for that, but this is primarily a training ground for saints to grow in their faith and then go out. Okay, it, this is this is why we gather to be in fellowship, to encourage, to grow around the teaching of the word, to become deeper rooted in our faith together, that our unity might be fortified as we stand with Christ, knowing that one day those we're sitting around in our seats today are going to be those we're standing around the throne with in heaven one day. And we don't want to sacrifice anything that brings that down or changes it into something different. The fellowship and the gathering of the saints is a beautiful and sacred thing. It's a beautiful place for us to let our hair down and be with family and to say, okay, we may have a lot of things that make us very different, but they're the things that make us one in Christ are the things that matter most. Our relationship with God by faith through his grace, that which is rooted and anchored in the person of Christ and his finished work. That's why we worship. By the way, I'm so glad the walls are back. The songs we sang this morning, that first one, we should do that a lot. I'm not sure if they're in here right now or not. But the idea of worshiping together and coming around the throne together and worshiping God together, this is beautiful. This is precious. Precious, truly. Something that is worthy of of being, uh, worthy of endeavoring to maintain the purity of it and the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes on in verse 4 and says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now notice in your versions there, uh, most of your English translations, the words there is are in italics. What does that mean? It's not in the original, right? Now, I think it makes sense that it's there. I understand why you'd put it there, because it does seem to allow a certain level of flow in the text. But I like the way it reads without it better. Listen to what it says. Uh, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, and so on. 
there's a clarity that comes with that that's nice, but I think it comes at the expense of the impact of what's being said. There is this wonderful sort of forthrightness about this whole concept of what it is we're endeavoring to keep together, and he just goes right into it. I love that. And anyway, so we're going to talk about this idea of what it is that we ultimately uh, have are now endeavoring to to maintain the unity of, and it is these ones that are mentioned here. Now, you will have probably sort of gotten a sense, especially if you come from a traditional background. How many of you come from a background that is uh, more maybe high church, more maybe traditional mainline denominational? Some of you do. It's possible that in reading this passage, this had sort of a creedal sort of feel to it. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. It does have that kind of feel to it. And there is something about that that is instructive and helpful for us. Now, I'm not, you may have noticed, a high church-minded kind of person. And I'm not putting that down. That's just not me personally. But I have to say, I do understand and respect the wisdom behind the idea of some of the creeds of the church in the ages that have gone by. Uh, some of them are very specific to denominations and that kind of thing. But in general, things like the Nicene or Apostles' Creed, which, by the way, these, these words undergird those creeds. There is something about that concept of reciting these ideas because in a succinct fashion, they remind us as we repeat them from time to time of the foundational truths of our faith. And that, that in itself is a good thing. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying all creeds are good necessarily theologically all the way through, but a lot of them really are. They're wonderful and rich in that way. This is one of those kinds of things that those are born from. And a passage like this reminds us of some of the fundamental foundational truths of our faith that ought not be set aside or forgotten. I'm not saying you have to go back to this passage and recite it every morning, but when you get to a passage like this, recognize it for what it is. It's something that helps us understand in succinct fashion what our faith ultimately stands upon, some of the truths that endure and endear to us because they resonate with us. This is what we were called to. This is what we've been brought into. This is the beauty and benefit of being within the family of God. Um, so again, here we go moving into them. So one body, as he begins with, there is one body. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, we spoke about it a little bit already, but the idea that God in Christ has broken down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. If you come to faith in Christ today, you become part of the church. Whether you are Jewish, Gentile, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, there is therefore neither slave nor free, Scythian nor Greek, male nor female, whatever. It's like you are in Christ, you are a part of the church. Now that doesn't erase ethnic distinctions and all these wonderful things that God has given us or gender distinctions or any of that kind of thing, but rather instead it just tells us that whatever background or whatever you come from whatever you were born into. If you come into the body of Christ, you are part of the church where these distinctions still exist, but they no longer have a bearing on your entrance into the kingdom of God. None of these things are a detraction or, a, or, or anything that you are part of something. Now you are one and you are part of the body of Christ, which means that if you are not in the body of Christ, that is to say that you are not a believer in this age. People came to, to faith 
previously in ages past in the Old Testament. And when the church is gone in the tribulation period, there will be those who come to faith afterwards. And those are distinct groups that there's an entire theology behind. But we're talking about this age in which we are living right now, from the time of the resurrection until the time that ultimately we are snatched away and brought home. We are living in what is called the church age, and this is the body that Paul refers to when he says you're a part of a body, the body of Christ. Nobody who is a believer is not part of the body of Christ, and no one who is not a believer is in the body of Christ. Which is to say, and we'll talk more about this when we get to one faith, the idea is that it's not that you are sincere in your beliefs and they're misguided, and that's okay. It's not. It is important that you put your trust in Christ alone as the one who has taken your sin upon himself and has set you free. Apart from him, there is, as again Peter said, no salvation outside of that name. Jesus himself would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so one body, you are part of this body of believers. Now, of course, the body of Christ finds expression throughout the world in different contexts, doesn't it? There is this local body, Calvary Chapel Franklin, that you're part of. There's other churches that are Calvary and non-Calvary that, you, that, are, that are filled with believers who are uh, part of the body of Christ as well. And local expressions of that can take on different characteristics and, and, and appearances and, and have various peripheral beliefs in that. But all churches, all parts of the body of Christ fundamentally hold the same beliefs. They may find expression differently. But at a core level, the beliefs are the same. And we'll talk more about that as this continues to expand. Um, now, I would say, and with, with, for this, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's not that, um, it's not that there aren't other, well, you know, I'll tell you what, let's, let's hold on to that for a minute. That's going to fit better somewhere else. <laughs> hold on to that one. We're going to go there so you can stick a bookmark in or something. But again, one, one Lord. Uh, or one body, I should say. He goes on then and says, one spirit. One spirit. This would refer to the Holy Spirit. Okay? On top of all believers being part of the body of Christ in this age, all believers, by definition, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We all have this in common. Again, this is this concept of one. There is no believer that does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. It's like the old expression, you're a saint or you ain't, okay? And the distinction of that is the Holy Spirit's indwelling. If you're not a believer, you would not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. If you are a believer, it is because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. That is part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian. This is not talking about things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that kind of thing. That is not in view in any part of this discussion. Even the baptism part is not talking about the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about something different. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the Holy Spirit himself dwells within all believers. This is a truth that we all as believers have in common. Um, in At the end of chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, we are told of how the Holy Spirit is the seal of the guarantee of our redemption. The fact that he dwells within us means that we will experience the fullness of all that the redemption means. Uh, This is not a peripheral concept or doctrine within the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit resides within all believers. The first time we see this happen is in John chapter 20, if you want to turn there with me.
If you're new with us, by the way, we encourage you to always bring your Bible with you because we do flip around from place to place and look at these passages. I just feel it's important for us to see these things for ourselves and not just necessarily, you know, take it within, you know, just because I said it or something. Um, so in John chapter 20, in verse 21, Jesus is meeting with the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the first example of what you would consider a New Testament believer. Now, the Holy Spirit is not just alongside of or even coming upon like he would have in the previous ages in the Old Testament. Now the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said in the upper room in his discourse with the disciples at that time, the Holy Spirit is no longer just with them, but also is now in them. And this now becomes what is true of all believers from that point on. Anyone who comes to Christ becomes so as they are born again by the Spirit of God who now indwells them by faith through God's grace. But so one spirit... Uh, matter of fact, one other passage in John I'd like us to turn to in John chapter 3. I find this passage fascinating. This is, of course, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Uh, and, of course, I will refrain from the joke Nicodemus or Nick at night. But this is when Jesus came, uh, Nicodemus came to, correct, I didn't, did I? But Nicodemus <laughs> comes to, to Jesus at night and he says to him, good teacher, You know, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because nobody can do the things that he does that you're doing unless God is with him. And, uh, and, and Jesus there again in chapter three, I'll pick it up really in, um, uh, in verse five. Well, let's go ahead. Um, in verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are one is born again uh, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, just so you know, Nicodemus is not really thinking, okay, what you're saying, Jesus, is that we need to climb back into our mother's womb. He doesn't, that he knows that's not what Jesus is saying. He just doesn't really know what Jesus is saying. This idea of being born again is something that is confusing. It is new. He doesn't understand what he's saying. But the idea of being born physically a second time is very, very likely not what 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 uh, Nicodemus is saying uh, or wondering. But he is wondering what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus tells him. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus just brought up the idea of being born physically, and Jesus responds to that by saying, yes, you do need to be born physically through the water. But he says, you also must be born again by the Spirit. Okay, we'll read on. Um, Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. (coughs) That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sounds of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from uh, and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Now, now listen to what Jesus says in this following response. Are you the teacher in Israel and you do not know these things? Okay, now, I don't know how many times we've read through a passage like that. Jesus just told me has to be born again, not just physically, but born of the spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, how do you not know this? 
What is Nicodemus? A Pharisee. He is an expert in the law. You would be hard-pressed to find somebody in that day who knew the law of God better than Nicodemus. Jesus says, how can you be such and not know what I'm talking about? What does that tell you? This is something that has been anticipated throughout history. And in God's law, we have examples of the Holy Spirit coming upon We also have examples of men trying to live up to the righteous standard of the law, but being incapable of it. Jesus says you have to be born of the Spirit. This truth is something that Nicodemus should have picked up on from the law, but didn't. And Nicodemus kind of calls him on it. Or Jesus, I should say, calls Nicodemus on it, right? He says, how would you not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen and you, and you do not know and receive our witness, or you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or have eternal life. Now, He has just told Nicodemus the gospel, okay? He has just laid it out for him. And he's implied that Nicodemus probably should have saw this coming, okay? In verse 16, again, we see this beautifully succinct example of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And he goes on. The idea of being born again by the Spirit is something that Jesus himself said is necessary. I remember when I first came to Christ and I said for the first time the words, yeah, I'm born again. And I heard back, oh, you're one of those born agains. How many of you ever heard that? Some of us been walking with the Lord for a long time. We've never really heard that. That's, I don't know if it's gone out of vogue or what, but I remember hearing that for the first time and I remember saying it for the first time and it's sounding strange to me because I grew up in a, as a Catholic. We didn't talk like that. But when I saw that Jesus himself said you needed to be born again, born of the Spirit, not just physically, but you needed to be reborn spiritually, that was life-changing. That was, you know, that, it made sense to me. The idea of being born by the Spirit, in other words, you don't just come into this life, pick a religion to belong to, and if you're fortunate enough to pick Christianity, great, you pick the right church to go into, or great, right religion to walk into. It's not that. It's not that. We would really do well to make sure we never forget the difference between sitting in a seat in a building and having Christ enthroned in our hearts. The idea that he now dwells within us, that we are new creations in Christ. We're not just better at following rules now that we're trying to be more religious. Paul tried that and counted it as rubbish. No, instead, we are born again. There is one spirit. As I mentioned earlier, there may be a lot of things about us that are very different. 
but the most important fundamental thing about us as believers we have in common, one spirit. We are born again by the spirit of God. Back in Ephesians. It's one body, one spirit. Again, verse 4, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. One hope. Um, the idea of hope in the Christian life doesn't speak of something that we are uncertain of, but are hoping in the traditional way we use the term. We're not sure if it's going to happen, but we sure hope it does. That's how we generally tend to use the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope in this context of like the hope of our calling or our hope in Christ and that kind of thing, it's speaking of hope as a sure thing. It is something that is just a matter of joyously anticipating and waiting for it to happen, but there's no doubt that it's going to be. Okay? It is our hope. It is something we rest our our hope upon. It is something that we find rest in. It is something that we are looking again with a joy-filled sense of anticipation that is coming and we don't wonder if it's going to happen. We know it is. It's just a matter of when. It's a very different kind of an idea when we talk about hope in the Christian faith. Uh, this kind of hope that is rooted and anchored in Christ does not disappoint, but rather instead will be fulfilled. And, and I know we've been in this before, but turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. Because I just want to give us sort of a, um, just a good place to, to mark in your Bible as a place to go to and read and be reminded of what this hope is speaking about. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you have you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is incorruptible, it is undefiled, it does not fade away, it is reserved in you who are kept by the power of God. Again, it is a hope that is sure. It is God's hand that holds you and delivers you ultimately to that great hope that he is holding for you. In other words, he's made the reservation for you and he's holding you for the reservation. And this reward will not perish or fade away. It will be there in glory waiting for you. And then he goes on to talk about how the prophets of old talked about this, wrote about this and such. God's desire is that you rest in the knowledge that this hope is sure. Now, how many of you remember being an unbeliever and lacking, you know, that certain level and degree of assuredness of hope? I remember every night, I shouldn't say every, but many nights, lying in bed saying, Lord, please don't take my life tonight. 
after a night of this, that, or the other thing, and laying in bed with a spinning room, as Solomon would have described, Lord, please don't take me tonight because I'm not ready. I still remember the fear I felt. I can feel it. I remember it. I don't have that anymore. I don't have that anymore. Because my hope is built on nothing less, right, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I am secure and safe in the hands of him who holds me, and therefore I have a living hope. You know something? You and I share that together. Now, you may not feel that. You may feel like at times you're afraid that maybe you're not in that. But you are. And you need to know that. That as a child of God, this is a promise that he has made you. And that promise stands upon his faithfulness. But wait a minute. I I sin. I mess up. I fall. I. You know something? That's true of all of us. I'm always encouraged when I consider Paul's writings in Romans 7 and 8. You should always read those chapters together. Romans 7 talks about how Paul is recognizing his own weakness in the flesh. And remember, Paul is writing Romans about 30 years into his relationship with Christ. I mean, this is a guy who has been walking with the Lord, used massively, church planning, evangelizing, writing a third of the New Testament. This is a guy that God has had his hand upon. Jesus personally commissioned him. He is somebody who is absolutely, he knows the Lord and is saved and recognizes his weakness in the flesh. The things that I want to do and know I should be doing, these things I don't find the strength to do. The things that I know are wrong and I don't want to do, these I find myself doing. And this cry of anguish, you can feel it. Wretched man that I was. No, Wretched man that I am. You, Paul, really? You wrestle with this too? This is not just me? I hope nobody knows. No, every Christian does. Every believer has this struggle. I mean, to varying degrees. I mean, some people just have this wonderful freedom from so many things, but even they would say, you know, there's something in my life that I'm still wrestling with and I give to the Lord every day. And they feel that wretchedness. But you know something? Paul doesn't stop with that sense of being condemned in Christ or condemned outside of Christ because of that wretchedness within. Rather, instead, quite the opposite. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul is anticipating that glorified body he will one day have where these struggles will be no more. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is now, therefore, no condemnation In Christ Jesus. Yes, amen. Amen. Do you understand the freedom that you have? Your hope is secure in him. If you're a believer, right? If you're not a believer, you have no access to such confidence and hope. If you do, it's a misplaced confidence in your own sense of righteousness. I'll get there because I'm good enough. And, And by good enough, what I really mean is I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. We all know somebody who's worse than us, right? And if we don't know somebody who's worse than us, that's really a shame. But (laughs) but we can always think of somebody, you know, somebody who is, you know. Hitlers exist for this. There's always a Hitler you can point to. But that's not the standard. You're not being judged by, well, at least you're better than that guy. That's not how it works. We, we, We sort of live under this misguided idea that I'm good enough because I'm not as bad as. You know, even within like reform theology, the idea of, of 
sin and, and depravity and this kind of thing, it still doesn't even mean you're as bad as you could be. It just means you're dead in sin. You're born into it, right? So even whatever whatever length of, of sinner you see yourself as, the point is you're dead in sin when you start the game. And we are now saved from that by the grace of God. So if you think you're good enough, you can't think that way. You seriously cannot think that way. You certainly theologically cannot think that way. That is not the standard God is judging you by. He's judging you by what you actually are. And outside of Christ, you remain dead in sin rather than alive in Christ. Um, I am not going to get through all of this today. You know, Victor asked me, are you going to get to verse 10 today? <laughs> no, I'm not even going to get really through uh, verse 5, to be honest with you. Um, I'm not sure, did I get out of verse 4 even? Um, not really, huh? So I'll tell you what, we're going to stop there this morning, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 5 next time. I really had planned on getting through all that, but uh, it's ambitious. But anyway, my hope in that is that as we take our time and consider these things, that it's profitable to do that and not to just sort of give a light bit of service to each of these ideas, but rather instead to take time on them. Because I, I will tell you, um, my desire is that we would love the Word of God, that this would not just sort of be a quick three-pointer and out, but rather instead it would be something where we just delve in and drink richly from this draft of of, of of this living water that just sort of runs here through. We just want to take what God has given us and, and spend a minute on it and understand it and chew on it. And when we leave here, think about these things and consider what the Word of God has said. And so that said, we'll take our time through the, the, the passages uh, as we continue on. The title was called One. We didn't put it up there. It's probably a good thing because we didn't get it done in one message after all. <laughs> so it'll be One, Part Two next week. Yeah, so... All right. Well, I'll tell you what, before I pray, does anyone have any questions or anything on what we just covered or I guess on whatever? Okay. I like to leave time once in a while if we do. Is anybody? If not, that's fine. But if so. Should, should, we, should we still hold 1 Corinthians? No, no. That'll be for next time. You can let go. Yeah, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 8 next week, presumably. So, but uh, all right. Well, praise the Lord. Thanks again for being here this morning. Father, we're thankful for just giving us your word and giving us a hunger for it. Uh, Lord, we do thank you that uh, as we break forth this bread of life, that it nourishes our souls. And we just pray that as we continue to do this, that we would grow stronger and deeper in our faith, that we would stand upon these precious truths that you've given us, that help us to understand the, the rest and the, uh, the security, the richness that we have in this relationship in Christ. We thank you that we were once lost, but now have been found. We thank you that we were once dead in sin but now have been made alive in Christ. And we thank you that it's by grace we have been saved. We praise you that you didn't leave it upon our shoulders to try and earn this. Not only could we never do it, but we'd always be pulling our hair out, wondering if we finally achieved enough. But instead, you've told us our predicament, and as bad of news as that is, that we're dead in sin, we thank you that at least it helps us see our actual condition. And we thank you that because we are dead in sin, there is no hope except that someone come in and rescue us and breathe life into us. Thank you that Jesus did that very thing. 
We praise you and bless you that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If there are any in this room who don't know you, I pray that they would ponder this very thing and come and receive Christ today. That no longer would they be on the outside, but they would see, they would receive that precious gift of that forgiveness that he has afforded us and the grace that accompanies. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I confess openly to you that I am a sinner. That I've rejected Christ, I have kept him away, and I have lived my own life my own way. But I realize today my actual condition. I can't save myself, and I put my trust in Jesus, who died, was buried, and rose again because of your great love for me. I trust him with my salvation now. No longer myself, but Jesus. And I pray that you'd help me by your Holy Spirit, who now indwells me, that I would follow you all the days of my life. Take my life and let it truly be set apart for you. I thank you and praise you for your great love for me and your grace toward me and the future that you've set before me. Thank you for your love and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't we stand? Let's close with a, a song together, and then we'll cut you loose. We'll sing Holy as Our God.
Bless you as you walk with him. We'll see you soon.